John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 1412.JM0503, certificate number 5888. Watch the K Foundation burn a million quid. If I had a million dollars, well I'd buy you a house, I would buy you a house. And if I had a million dollars, if I Buy you furniture for your house, maybe an ice chester field or an ottoman. In your youth, yeah. were you interested in the idea of a million dollars? Like, did you think about millionaires and what you would do if you were ever a millionaire? At, uh, in my youth, a million dollars was about the top of your aspiration. Exactly. For, I mean, our, for our generation, that's the equivalent of what if you won the lottery? It's equivalent to... What would you do if you were the king of the universe? I almost feel like I remember the first time the lottery reached a million dollars. And it was like a big, it was in the newspapers. Like, the lottery is up to a million dollars. People in the future who are living in some Zimbabwe dollar-like society where it takes a million dollars to buy a banana. It's a quadrillion shell currencies. (laughs) They will not understand that a million kind of used to be the top I don't. Of what people could imagine. It was like the odometer rolling over into fantastic harem-like Pasha wealth. Well, and in fact, at the time, odometers in cars didn't go up to, they didn't even go up to 100,000 miles. So it was like Space Invaders, they would just get roll over to zero and you'd be like, woo! Yeah, if you got to 99,000 miles, then it was back to zero. And so even... You could sell the car as new. My truck right now says 35,000 miles on it, but I know it's 135,000. That reminds me of like in the Olympics when um, Nadia Comaneci had the 10.0 routine in Montreal and they didn't, they couldn't, they only had room for two digits. They didn't have so a So it 10. said 1.0. And if you ask her, she was just traumatized. She was like, a one? I've never seen anybody get a one. <laughs> yeah, like, what did I do? That's the worst I've literally <laughs> ever seen. Well, remember in the footage of that, like the audience doesn't know what to do for a minute and then it starts to dawn on them what it means. And the applause is like... And then the room goes crazy. Couldn't some guy have held up a one? Like, get somebody to run down there with a piece of cardboard, you know? <laughs> People weren't as clever then. But yeah. I, I think, I don't think I heard the word a billion or understood what a billion was until pretty late in life. What? I mean, I was. But we were raised in the age of Carl Sagan. 
Well, but he was always blowing our mind with millions of the thing light is years that or whatever. I was already 10 years old when Carl Sagan started to do. When he first put on his turtleneck? Yeah. So that whole thing, I mean, that's what I mean. A kid now would know what a billion was by the time they were seven, probably. But well, it's just more useful today because of both inflation and the concentration of wealth in a, in a, uh, enormous wealth in more people. We just heard recently that Bezos is worth now Jeff Bezos of uh, Amazon fame crossed the hundred billion line in terms of personal wealth. Is he the first? I think so. There have been millionaires almost as long as there's been Americans. There's a, you know, it's difficult to say, but by some estimates there were early Salem, Massachusetts merchants, you know, mm-hmm. uh, shipping magnets or whatever the equivalent of that was back then, you know, people who owned a fleet of merchant ships who, uh, who had a net worth of a uh, million dollars really? at the time. Um, when a dollar could buy a house and a horse. <laughs> you could, they just throw in the horse. Elias Haskett Derby uh, of the late 18th century is sometimes named as the first American millionaire. And at the time, I think for really for about a century, a dollar was about a, a, a pound was about five dollars. Mm-hmm. So you'd think there would be people in Britain who were five times as rich as Elias Haskett Derby, which means maybe there were pound millionaires as well. Yeah, I think there were, but you know, forty pounds for much of the 19th century was a pretty substantial amount of money. Yes, if you had an endowment of a hundred pounds a year, it was enough to sustain you. And the idea of a million as just a quality that, you know, unimaginable wealth. I, I believe there were no multimillionaires in America until uh, John Jacob Astor, the, the beaver killer, we've dis- the beaver genocide architect right. we've discussed before. And um, then famously J.P. Morgan and Rockefeller, R- Rockefeller that age yes. of millionaires. And, you know, in our generation, it's kind of an ironic joke. It's an Austin Powers joke. The idea that a million dollars once held this talismanic quality. One million dollars. Yeah, it's a sign of how out of touch you are that you only want a million dollars. Because I believe last time I looked, there was something like 5.1 million American households of millionaires. Really? Five million American families are millionaires. Isn't that crazy? Out of over 300 million Americans. Yes, because a million dollars is not worth what it was. When I was in high school... Um, I remember when my mom was earning $50,000 a year and it was at the time an amount that I considered put us into the upper, not upper middle class necessarily, but yeah, the top range of the middle class before you trended over into that rarefied world of doctors uh, who'd had thriving practices or something that made as much as $80,000 a year. But we'd been poor growing up, so to cross that $50,000 a year threshold was pretty extraordinary. And I think, you know, $50,000 a year is is still a, a meaningful wage now, but not one that put you in a position where you could buy a house in a great neighborhood and send your kids to a good school. No. I mean, today, having a million dollars is much better than... Not having a million dollars, I guess. Not for your soul. It can, I guess it, it cankers your soul. I guess you can say so as someone who has had a million dollars. That is a little weird that I um You are a millionaire. And everyone knows that there's a real taboo in American life about talking about your income or your portfolio or whatever. 
But when um, you made a million dollars, it was in the newspapers. And also they put the number of below my face every day on the TV, like a, like a, like a Galaga score, you know, like, so, so every day people see my face and a, and a monetary number. Right. Here's how good Ken is. $2 million. He's $2 million good yeah. at this game. I've never been $2 million good at anything. So it's a very weird kind of an etiquette situation where I'm a, a public millionaire, even though, you know, it's not really, you know, screw off and go buy an island kind of a money. But, oh, sure. Uh, sure. For you, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not an etiquette problem for me. Every time I shake your hand, I say, what's up, millionaire? <laughs> you know, people our age imagine like Scrooge McDuck. And uh, there was an old TV show called The Millionaire where this guy would just show up as an anthology where this guy would give a, an anonymous benefactor would give somebody a million dollars a week and see what happened to their life. Yeah. And that, you'd be like, wow. Isn't that the plot of uh, Trading Places? That's <laughs> basically the plot of Trading <laughs> And then there's the reverse Brewster's Millions where Richard Pryor has to lose a million dollars. Right, in order to gain $10 million. Yeah, or something. Yeah, even yeah. then, the inflation's starting to work, you know. First world problems. But uh, they, I, I've actually had the experience of, well, first of all, having Alex Trebek pull out a, a seven-figure check and just hand it to me. On TV. It was not, it was, uh, it was kind of funny. He, he asked me during, you know, the awkward little game show interview. Do I ever. That we all fast forward through. Even in the future, they're still fast forwarding through the, the awkward Jeopardy interviews. And he asked, how's the money changing your life, Ken? And I was like, Alex, it's not changing my life. You guys don't pay out until like uh, 90 days after air date. <laughs> and he was like, oh. And then after that show, he just reaches into his jacket. And pulls out a million dollars. Maybe he always has seven figure checks on it, but he just hands it to me. It seems like something they would have done on the show. I mean, these days, that would have been something to put on TV. It would have been one of the giant uh, charity checks. Yeah, but, but then Alex Trebek still had a little bit of class. They, uh, well, they reshot the interview. They're like, and now you have it. We're going to redo your answer. Oh, because they didn't <laughs> like the way it the, the way it played. You're right, because the show airs months after it tapes, and they like the illusion of, of right. simultaneity. I remember, but I've got the seven figure check for the rest of the day, and I have to change my clothes for every every show. So I and I didn't want to lose it. So while you were doing those subsequent ep episodes of the show, you had a million dollar check throbbing in your jacket pocket. I didn't want it. It's like the one ring, you know, yeah. like weighing Frodo down. So I, I, I had a friend in the crowd and I said, Hey, my, my college buddy is here. Can I go in and just hand him this check? So I, and, you know, I was like, would you watch this for me? And I just hand this guy, wow. whatever this was, one point something million. He goes to a taco truck and to his credit does not ask to spend, ask to break the check or I got arrested one time in, in, uh, by a park ranger in Alaska and my friend who was with me didn't get arrested. And so the park ranger handcuffed me and was like, I'm taking you to park ranger jail. What was the charge? Well, I mean, you know, are we was, not going to get into it was this? some kind of trumped up charge. <laughs> you, you know how those <laughs> rangers are, but you know, they're empowered as law officers. And so I had to give my friend my credit. Were you stealing picnic baskets, John? I was, I was stealing picnic baskets. That's just part of the game. Uh, me and my little friend. Uh, I had to give my friend my credit card. And I said, you know, go. This was in a time when I guess there were just beginning to be ATMs. Ah. And I was like, go to the ATM. Oh, no, no, no. Maybe he had to go to a bank. It was. <laughs> go to a bank to bail you know, me out. Like get the bail money. And I, and he, park ranger took me all the way down the mountain to park ranger jail and put me in this, the cell with bars and I'm sitting there. Is it nice? Is it like kind of a wood cabin like jail? No, it was uh, a normal bad jail. Uh, and my friend took my credit card and went and bought himself lunch. <laughs> 
and he and he had one of those old VHS style video cameras that's you know the size of basically like a like a small car or like the size of a machine gun. Mm-hmm. And he set the video camera up on the table and then proceeded to videotape himself eating lunch on my dime while I sat in jail. <laughs> you know, it was the 1980s and we used to play hijinks on each other. Video cameras and uh, seven-figure dollar amounts uh, do come into this tale as well. In a past entry in the Omnibus, when we were talking about hypercolor, we were talking about the rave culture uh, that started in Northern England in mm-hmm. the 1980s. Late 1980s. Right. Throbbing dance music. And by the early 90s, there started to be kind of a Baroque, kind of post-acid house music, uh, also coming out of Northern England. And the standard bearers, the top-selling band in Britain in 1991 and 1992, were a group called the KLF. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the KLF? I do. I remember KLF. them. KLF. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I remember them pretty well, actually. KLF is going to rock you Those were peak music years for me. They're your favorite band of all time, is that right? They were not my favorite band, even of that time. (laughs) They were, uh, it was a duo. Um, They sometimes called themselves King Boy D and Mm. Rock Man. So you can see where my distaste for them began. Uh, yeah, they're like a like a dollar store Beastie Boys knockoff, apparently. Yeah, some some guys from Northern England that are like, "I'm King Boy D," and it's like, <laughs> "No, no, your your name is Bill Drummond." You can't just say that. <laughs> it was two guys named Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cotty. They were they they were musicians. Oh, Jimmy Cotty's name was Rockman Rock. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but here's the thing: no. like, there's something ironic and a little postmodern about their kind of silly names that they've chosen for themselves. And that was the game these guys played. Right. They were art hijackers or they were they were trying to do that. Kind of anarcho pranksters. Right. They came out of a, an art background, in fact. Uh, Bill Drummond had, Bill Drummond was from Sc- a Scottish family, but I think spent his more formative years, you know, his 20-somethings. He, he was in Liverpool by that time. He was a South African, wasn't he? He was born in South Africa. His dad was a churchman there. Yeah. But uh, I think the church got kicked out by the apartheid government, and he wound up in a council flat in somewhere in southern Scotland. The churchmen were originally from Churchministan. <laughs> they have a stripe of uh, papal <laughs> vestments down the side of their flag. And he went to art school uh, later. Jimmy Cotty apparently skipped out on his interview for art school, but he was also an artistically minded young man. But he had a great artistic success when he was asked to draw a, a poster for The Lord of the Rings that became one of the top-selling British posters of all time. And you've maybe seen it, kind of this spidery hand doing this very intricate kind of wizard, a wizard and a hobbit um, in kind of sepia-toned line work that would have been on every, you know, in so many council flats and every cheap side, uh, you know, trying to sound British, you know, all these yeah. kids spraying Frodo lives on the subway would have had this poster. I, I, you know, this was at a time, if you remember back to the early days before recorded music, the entire music business was selling sheet music. Mm. Um, that was a, that was where the dollars came from selling sheet music to people that wanted to play. It'd be a hot time in the old town tonight or whatever on their pianos in their parlors. The man and, who broke the bank at Monte Carlo, we're, we're all going to want to sit around the parlor and sing this. And if you can imagine, there once was a time when there was a poster market that was big enough that anyone ever bothered to record that this guy was the number one selling poster in the United Kingdom. 
he it was just a poster you would have seen everywhere before his he became famous for his uh, musical hijinks. But they got together to form a band that was variously called the KLF, which they never really said what stood for. Some people said for them it was the Copyright Liberation Front mm. or something about low frequencies. Um, but they never said what it stood for. Sometimes they were the Justified Ancients of Mew or Moo Moo, mm. um, based on, again, uh, I think we've said this will be in the omnibus eventually, the Elamin... Elamin <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Go on. The Illuminatus Trilogy. The, right. Of uh, Robert Anton Wilson, kind of this weird uh, conspiracy-minded American thing about crystals and pyramids and weird secret societies and, and kind of an ironic take on that whole scene. Sure, the under the North Pole civilization. Sure, and Mew was the name of a, a kind of a proto-Atlantis, this kind of hypothetical sunken continent that some 19th century weirdo traveler had come up with. And, you know, Egypt and Babylonia and all these civilizations got their powers from the priests of Mu. We're actually going to talk about this in a future episode of the Omnibus, or future entry, rather, uh, because it's on my list as a subsection of the Church of the Subgenius. Ah, the Church of the Subgenius intersects with, with uh, the continent of Mu? I'm afraid it does, <laughs> in some twisted way. And so these guys... They were, uh, also, uh, they were also famously... The Time Lords. Well, that was their big hit. So Bill Drummond was a manager, road manager for Echo and the Bunny Man, mm -hmm. later became an A&R guy for some label, at which point, you know, the, really the only good thing he did was to sign a band called Brilliant. And he met their guitarist, Jimmy Cotty. And these two like-minded guys hit it off and decided to form a duo where they would kind of do their own fun, anarchic thing with music. And they decided one thing they wanted to do is to have a number one hit. So this is infuriating and it was infuriating then, but it's even more infuriating for me to hear it now. Their number one hit in the UK was called Doctor in the TARDIS, which is a Doctor Who reference. Oh my God. They called themselves the Time Lords for this. Oh, I just want them to die. You know, in, in Britain, you can, you can have a number one with these stupid novelty hits or Christmas novelty hits. I think to this day, because there's like, uh, maybe 45 people buying the records. Well, isn't the, isn't Paul McCartney's Christmas song, or I guess Mull of Kintyre is his number one selling song yeah, of how all did, time. How did Mull of Kintyre sell? I don't know. 50 million or whatever it I was. I don't know. I keep trying to listen to it to hear what people heard in it. And I'm just like, yeah, I guess so, man. I honestly think, I honestly think of it as some kind of, of the moment, we are the world kind of mass hysteria yeah. where, for some reason, you just had to have it. Maybe they gave it out free at, at Tesco or something. But this particular mentality that a number one hit is a formulaic thing that some art hijackers or some couple of snide ironicists can just produce a number one hit and thereby prove that all music taste is garbage and the music industry is garbage. You love it and agree with it. This, this is like a premise that, I mean, it's just like the popularity of ska music. Every month there's a new generation of people that have never heard this idea and they're like, you know what, it's just so easy to make a pop song. And so for these guys to have actually done it intentionally... It's, is so maddening. Does it make, is it okay if it's the worst song? And not coincidentally, this is the worst song ever made. It is uh, the Doctor Who theme song. These guys were very into sampling you know, before Fatboy Slim or anything made sampling cool. And it certainly wasn't legal. They sampled Dancing Queen heavily on one of their first records and were ordered by the courts to 
destroy all copies. And they did one of their first performance art things, actually. They went to Stockholm with all the albums and tried to find Agnetha or Anna Fried or, or, you know, some comely ABBA ex-member to give all the records to. And when they couldn't find her, they filmed themselves just handing it to some prostitute on the streets of Stockholm and, and you know, buggering off home. Good job, guys. <laughs> they, nice <you> art statement. <laughs> When it comes to meat, quality makes a huge difference in texture and taste. And even though it might be better for you and the environment, a lot of the higher quality meat you find at the grocery store is just too expensive for most people's budget. Thankfully, there's ButcherBox. ButcherBox believes everyone deserves access to high-quality, humanely sourced meat at an affordable price. That's why each month, ButcherBox ships a curated selection of the finest cuts right to your home. Choose from 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, heritage pork, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, and sugar and nitrate-free bacon. No antibiotics, no added hormones, just meat the way meat should be. And right now, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free plus twenty dollars off your first box when you visit butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout that's butcherbox.com slash iheart or use the promo code iheart at checkout but uh, doctor and the tardis is is even worse it's the doctor who theme song they were going to mash it up with something else and found that it's in triplet time which doesn't really go with too much so with nothing else, no other kind of dance music to resort to, they mixed it with Rock and Roll Part 2 by Gary Glitter. Oh, my God. And this is the hit. It's a, it's a science fiction novelty thing. So the, those of you in the future who, are, who aren't familiar with the work of Gary Glitter. He was a beloved child <laughs> pornographer. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, and in America, nobody really cared that much about Gary Glitter, but he was one of the true heroes of the United Kingdom like not just in rock, but like he was a cultural icon. And his one stadium rock hit was widely heard here. It's a certain kind of muscular, we are the champions kind of thing that you could not go to a sports game without hearing. And it goes like this, <laughs> rock and roll, hey, rock and roll, rock and roll, hey, rock and roll. It's garbage, but it's but a stadium. Lyrics, but the lyrics are fantastic. It's a stadium style thing where you stomp your feet and you clap your hands. But then these dinglings, the <laughs> KLF, Made it go. AKA the Time Lords. The Time Lords. How did it go? I'm not going to do it. <laughs> it went like this Doctor Who. Hey. Doctor Who. Doctor Who. I mean, they should be still in prison for having committed this crime. Not only did they uh, score a notch a number one hit. Number one. And make a bajillion pounds, uh, but they also decided they would write a book called The Manual, teaching other bands how to write stupidly, mindlessly successful garbage pop hits. You have no idea how many conversations this precipitated between musicians who were 26 talking to musicians who were 21. And the 21-year-old musician was telling the 26-year-old musician that it was that easy to make a number one hit. Uh, in the wake of this phenomenal garbage music, they recorded a full anthem of kind of rave anthems, kind of along the lines of Doctor Who, except less kind of self-consciously goofy. Um, the record was called The White Room, and it became a pretty big hit in the U.S. They remixed some of their numbers with a, a, a rapper over the beat, 
They were experimenters. They, their biggest U.S. chart hit uh, was a remix of their song Justified and Ancient, again, about the priests of Moo, but this time with uh, a, a Tammy Wynette singing the hook. <laughs> Country star Tammy Wynette singing the hook, and it was called, like, Stand By Your Man remix or something, Stand By Your Moo. This was, uh, I think, a top 10 hit or nearly so in the U.S. And they did, they remixed All You Need Is Love. They did, uh, the. do you remember Samantha Fox? Uh, I do. I remember her one hit. Wasn't she some like page three girl who, uh, yeah. who had one top 10 hit? Yeah. And uh, they remixed that. And they're having a laugh, as they would say in they, the U.K. Uh, like, yeah. can you believe we're making all this money and going on all these tops of the pop shows and chat shows with this utter shite? They, they, they might say. And they predated like the gorillas in terms of they would appear anonymously on stage or they would have hoods and sunglasses on so you couldn't tell who they were. I mean, a lot of British pop groups ended up adopting that or Euro pop groups. Who are the ones that wear helmets? Exactly. I feel like they are the forerunners of Daft Punk and all these bands that create a kind of mystique right. just by the virtue of their uh, kind of weird stage persona like do these guys really think they're the priests of the continent of, uh, of moo yeah like, wow what is the deal with these weirdos and of course they didn't they just thought it was incredibly funny to treat pop music like an art scene an avant-garde art scene wasn't but yes I, yeah, mean, I mean i can see you as a kind of an earnest young guitar strumming man like so offended by this idea like you're pouring your heart and soul into these lyrics well the thing is like um they were big influences on the prodigy for instance, uh, which was 10 years later, but still doing that kind of like, is this art? It, what is, is it meant to be dance music? I mean, and it's still, you still today. Anytime you go to a Katy Perry show or a Miley Cyrus show, you're still going to see the same kind of winking, um, super glam, dumb, hypersexualized. Do I mean it or not? Kind of, uh, splashy irony fest. Yeah. And, but the, I think the difference is that if you listen to the KLF now, it doesn't hold up the, it sounds incredibly dated. And I think the idea of like a, some white British dance music dudes with a black American rapper over the top of it, like a lot of different people tried that and with varying degrees of success, uh, again, to refer to the gorillas creatively, it was, I think a success. But this just felt like pretty, it felt tone deaf to me at the time, but now really it's like in the Millie Vanilli family. I think they also knew it was not sustainable because they immediately got out. You know, the year after their big record came out, they played the 1992 Brit Awards where they were the best album of the year and the best group of the year. And they were the top selling everything of the year. And they gave a final performance where they kind of burned the house down. They, uh, originally, Bill Drummond said his idea was to cut off his own hand during the set, which thankfully he did not. <laughs> thankfully he did not do. You know, you, we've seen a lot of bands try that. And well, why are you grateful that he didn't do it? <laughs> <laughs> well, for him, the guy's gonna oh, want. The guy's gonna want his hand. I see what you're saying. Like we're gonna see these guys do stupid things essentially on a dare, but you don't want to do it with anything anatomical. Um, I, and, I, I watched a I watched a video of some juggalos at a uh, at the hole in rock at their famous juggalo event. Yes. And somebody with a video camera came up to some guy and was like, I dare you to cut your ear off. And the guy cut his ear off and it was like, Hmm. 
Right on. There's a little, yeah, there's a little KLF in, uh, in Insane Clown Posse too. For sure there is. I think. Um, instead, they just fired machine guns into the crowd with, with, with blanks. Oh, okay. With, with blanks, luckily. Samantha Fox and Kylie Minogue survived. I was going to say, <laughs> I think I would have heard of that. And they had, they were playing with some kind of like crust punk band, like some kind of motorheady, like really gr- dirty metal kind of punk band just to say like, you know, essentially we don't care. We're having a laugh. Right. And I think at the after party, they dragged in a dead sheep. This, this ties into the, uh, oh. the, uh, Afghan, the, it's uh, another Rambo event. <laughs> they t- and the dead, she had a thing around his neck that said, it's a pun on the word you. It's something like we're done. Thank you very much. EWE. Mm. And, uh, so art. So after the award show, uh, Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cotty announced that the KLF is no more. Oh, they broke. They're at the top of their game. Number one. Billings, the biggest selling band in Britain. Won all the awards. And then they break up at the awards. They throw a bloody sheep at the party. In the after party and (sighs) hop in their limo. What what an ultimate art statement. And they're gone. Wow. And it's even worse than that. Although I don't think this ended up happening. They also announced they're going to just kind of erase their back catalog. Like all their work is going to be immediately unavailable. Hmm. Um, Although I don't think they ended up doing that. Now, as contemptuous as I sound... Or jealous. Or jealous. Could be either one. Combination of both. (laughs) Contemptuous. Blah, blah, blah. I have to, I should put a flag in this for futurelings and say at this point in time, um, the relationship between art and capitalism was extremely fraught. Uh, There was a lot of. Unlike now where we've worked it all out. Well, but in a way, in a way, the punk rock wars of the late 80s and early 90s were resolved. Um. At the time, there were... Who, who, who won? The Capitalisms. Sweet. Um, at the time, there were a lot of bands that refused to engage with... Um, although they were fully in bed with record companies, they refused to engage with sponsors and, and oh, right. you know, take filthy lucre. We're not going to have the Gatorade summer tour. Right. Um, and certainly, you know, not Miller beer or anything like that. And Fugazi famously uh, refused to charge more than $5 for a show. But I remember during this period, bands, um, some friends of mine put tape over the the word Fender on the headstocks of their guitars. Wow. Because they didn't want to give free advertisement to Fender, although those guitars are clearly... It's know, like somebody on a sitcom holding up a soda, a green soda, but turning the Sprite side away from the camera. Right. Because screw Sprite. All those shows that you do where they come out and they turn your water bottles around so it doesn't say whatever <laughs> brand. Or, or just some guy beginning pixelated on MTV because he happened to wear his, uh, you know... His Levi's t-shirt or whatever. But I think to a contemporary audience, that seems very strange because almost all pop groups have made a common cause with sponsors. And, um, and in fact, our version of art now, contemporary art, is almost entirely dependent on uh, corporate sponsorship. You like, go to a Taylor Swift show and she hands everybody a pair of goggles and you put it on and she is replaced by a giant Coca-Cola logo that, right. that dances around the stage. Or a Hello Kitty. But for instance, I mean, the internet itself is almost, I mean, the only way that money is made is by advertising. Uh, that's how everything is monetized, in, in, including this. But at the time, because you could still sell records and make money that way, this stuff that these guys are doing, this delete your back catalog and uh, flaunt what, what other bands would, you know, call the, the reason they're doing it, the money, 
flouted or flaunted? I'm sorry, flouted, not flaunted. You could also you're going to get letters. It. They're going to flaunt it and flout it at the end of the story. Right. It would. Uh, they would. They'd be flouting it, and that would read as a kind of like radical statement that that I think people would understand and approve of much more in 1989 or 90 than than they would now. Sure. It, it seems principled, right? Principled. Because that's what they're doing. They're going to walk away at the height of their power. And in order, what they're going to, what they want to do is to start an artistic nonprofit called the K Foundation. Right. And that's going to destroy capitalism by virtue of its, uh, you know, just it's like contemptuous dismissal of the importance of money and and fame and power. They seem critical uh, of capitalism as a whole, but also of the art establishment. Yes. They're very, so I guess that's the thing that avant-garde artists do is that they have, to, they have to be more avant-garde than even the avant-garde establishment. You know, you have to talk about how they're all in bed with the wrong people and you're doing the real thing. Right. You threw a sheep, you threw <laughs> a dead sheep into their party. Like that's art. The very first thing they did to get headlines, uh, the night of the Turner Prize, which is Britain's big art award, I guess it was uh, widely believed that it was going to go to an artist named Rachel Whiteread, who did casts of large everyday objects. I think her big um, sculpture that year was called House. She poured sealant on the inside of a brick house and then took off the roof and filled it with concrete and then stripped off the walls. So you had a concrete sculpture of the negative space of a house. That's going to look amazing in your, in your apartment. I'm going to put that on my mantle. <laughs> yeah. And this is also an era when what constitutes art is also changing. Ongoing. You yeah. Know? Like ever since, you know, ever since the invention of photography, art has had the identity crisis of we are no longer just about trying to get stuff to look really real and good because we have cameras for that now. So what does art do then? Right. Um, Challenges our yeah. expectations. What kind of big conceptual statements can you make? And the audience that has started to see a lot of these experiments starts to become jaded and inured to it and wants something bigger and crazier and nuttier and more conceptual. And these are the Damien Hirst years and the, and in America, the NE, NEA Years. Right, the battles over controversial art. Right. Um, and people just in general um, trying to get kind of widespread outside of the art world acclaim by doing big gimmicky things. Right. Christo putting, uh, you know, no. bunting around the Reichstag and a... Right, tarps out on an island. Thousand uh, umbrellas out on the coast of Monterey or whatever. Um, and I don't know if the KLF guys had anything in particular against... Rachel Whiteread, but they did not like the idea of these big prizes going to these name artists. And so they announced that they were going to give an award for the worst body of work. It was going to be double the size of the Tate Prize. It was going to be 40,000 pounds. Did they give it to themselves? <laughs> Pop will eat itself. <laughs> <laughs> a contemporary band of theirs. They took 40,000 pounds and put it in a frame and they got a, like a convoy of witnesses to go down and, and hammer the money into the frame and chain it to the Tate. Each witness was given, you know, one twenty-fifth of the money plus a little pocket, like 50 pounds to keep. And I think n not everybody put the money in the frame like they were supposed to. Sure, I would have pocketed <laughs> right. the money. Right. It turns out their art and music world friends were like, sweet, I'll just keep 500 pounds. Well, you know, if they'd, I would have put 500 pounds in my pocket and called it an art experiment. <laughs> the, that experiment cost them 9,000 pounds. I think what wound up in the frame was only 31,000 of the money they had originally allotted. 
And while the award is being given to Rachel White Reed inside, they have a vote, which I th- for some reason they assumed would be a tie. But Rachel White Reed won their body of work overwhelmingly, maybe oh, just because. Because the audience was also doing like a subversion, <laughs> a, a subversive art experiment. I don't know why they all picked her, but so she wins overwhelmingly. And they send word that she needs to come collect her prize by midnight or they'll they'll set the money on fire. They'll they'll light 30, what is believed 1, to be 40,000 pounds. Yeah, 31,000 pounds on fire. And Rachel Wyreed is not going to get roped into this. She's not doing their publicity stunt. She's not going to do it, not going to do it. And finally, as um, as midnight ticks closer, she does come out of the building, <laughs> grab the money and say, I'm giving this to young artists and, and wander off with it. Did anybody follow up on that, whether or not she gave it to young artists? <laughs> She was later seen in a very fancy car uh, <laughs> running over young artists in the street. Also an art experiment. No, I'm sh- I'm sure that's what happened. Um, but this was kind of the direction of the K Foundation. It mm-hmm. was to really kind of foreground the splashy money that a rock star has to throw around in ways that kind of subvert and challenge the art establishment. Um, they went to their accountant and said, uh, you know, Lionel, we want... Is that his name? Really? His name is, in fact, Lionel Martin. Lionel, okay. Lionel, you think that's just my go-to accountant <laughs> name? Like, yeah, I, I, that, that's why I asked, because it's like, that's not a normal accountant name, Lionel. <laughs> and, <laughs> they, and, the, and they went to Ruprecht and said... <laughs> their only requirement is that it be in brand new 50-pound notes. And he comes to find it's very hard to just go to a bank and be like, hey, my clients need you to release a million pounds, much less in nice, neat 50-pound notes. Right. You have to call in advance. Yes. And so whatever wheels have to turn, turn and weeks later. I've I've had the experience of taking a seven figure check into my bank, kind of hoping that there would be a. You're impossible. A a crate. Well, what do you do with it? You've got it. You've got to deposit it, right? I mean, it's impossible to talk to you like a normal person because you're like, oh, I remember when I tried to get my million dollar. For one day in my life, I was the K Foundation. (laughs) But my subversive um, art uh, experiment, my happening was trying to get a guy to deposit it. (laughs) Oh, they wouldn't even deposit it. Well, I thought it would be a whole, I'm going to have to get a manager. Right, right. And then some guy would come out and be like, yes, you know. But in fact, everybody just wanted to seem so normal. Right. That it was all very uh, underwhelming. Uh, all right, sir. Uh, I'm just going to need to see an identification. Identifi- you know, n- nobody was willing to actually say, you are depositing a game show check. They didn't They didn't recognize you? They weren't like, oh, I really enjoyed your performance on, uh, on that uh, art show, Jeopardy? <laughs> <laughs> that 33-year art experiment that's been running in syndication? Uh, I think it was like that would be non-professional. We're a bank. Right, right. sure, sure, sure. We're a bank, bank, so we just um, go about our business and stamp things, you know. Uh, It should be pointed out to both Futurelings and contemporary listeners that the 50-pound note is the highest denomination uh, pound note in circulation. They don't have a 100-pound That's true. They were not trying to get a big, nice table full of money. Right. That was just the only way to get a million quid in cash. Right. And the the dollar goes up to 100, but you know the euro has 500 denomination notes in regular circulation. And I think even thousand euro notes were available for a while until they realized that it, all it was doing was making it really easy for drug dealers to, you know, like schlep around giant sacks of money. Yeah. There's, there's statistics from the government about just what percentage of us hundred dollar bills are used in criminal activity. And yeah. I guess it's a lot. You yeah. Know, that's, that's who use, that's who's using a hundred dollar bill. Yeah. Who, who needs like their cash to be smaller? Um, generally, it's not $100 bills aren't for like people to make their wallets fit in their pants better. It's, it's for, you know, sending bales of money back to 
the home office. Turkmenistan yeah. or Colombia. Uh, the KLF, now the K Foundation, uh, wants to use this big amount of money just to do goofy stuff with it. They want to put it in a dumpster. They want to put it on a table. They're million pounds. They're million pounds. They put it all in a frame and they're, they uh, tell a gallery, this is, um, this is called Nailed to the Wall. It's just an exhibit where a, a million pounds are nailed to the wall. Super edgy. It's worth 500,000 pounds. Do you want it? Oh, wow. <laughs> they, they said the cash, they said the, the value of it is art was half the currency value. Oh, I would buy that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like you get your money back easy. I think you would. Would you strip it for parts immediately or would you uh, hang it? You know, I think what I do is get, it'd be like a, uh, it'd be like an advent calendar. <laughs> I'd go, I'd go by every day and grab a 50 pound note. That'd be my, uh, my artistic expression. They told the gallery that they would have to keep it up until, say, 2000 or 2001. Oh. And in exchange, the, you know, the funds would go to, to fund young artists. I guess everybody's funding young artists here. Oh, that's very important, even though <laughs> right. young artists uh, need to struggle. Have you always wanted to learn to play an instrument? Maybe you've even tried at some point, but gave up because you felt lessons were too expensive or that you just didn't have the time. Thankfully, there's Musician. Musician is the fun, easy, and affordable way to learn guitar, piano, bass, ukulele, and even singing. Just download the app to your desktop, tablet, or phone and start playing. Musician gives you 24-7 access to a vast catalog of video lessons from professionally trained educators, as well as thousands of exercises and songs across dozens of music genres, all tailored to your goals. And with Musician's award-winning technology that listens to you play, you'll get real-time feedback on timing and accuracy so you can actually see yourself improving as you learn. Start your extended 14-day free trial of Musician's Premium Plus package at musician.com start. That's unlimited access to thousands of lessons, exercises, and songs on as many instruments as you want for two whole weeks. Just go to musician.com slash start. That's Y-O-U-S-I-C-I-A-N dot com slash start. So this was the K Foundation for a while, just dragging their money around and getting galleries to be like, no, you know, like the, like the shocked desk clerk in Spinal Tap, you know, like, <laughs> I am as God made me, sir. God made me, sir. <laughs> no, but, but really the galleries are saying, we do not have the insurance or the security for this. Please take your, and maybe to some degree, please take your, your rock star bling somewhere else. This is, this is the serious art world now. Well, and, and also, I guess my, the, the tone, this is maybe the first episode we've done where I am super dubious from start to finish. You because, hate, no, you hated Billy the Pygmy Hippo so much. I did. I, <laughs> no, I didn't. He was a delight. Uh, no, but like I, w I was around for this era. I rem I and I was already not maybe quite a working artist, but certainly an aspirational one. I was one of the young artists that they should have been giving this money to. Um, but I feel like uh, the open question to us now and also to the future is, is any of this good art? Like, I don't think the music was good art. And I'm not sure that any of this attempt to take the money from the bad music and turn it into something meaningful is any good either. It's hard to enjoy today. The, a story about some rock stars trying to pedal a bunch of pound notes nailed to a wall. Or like going to an art gallery and putting up and saying like, hang our million dollars nailed to a wall in your art gallery and you have to do it until 2002. And then the art gallery says they no. And then the guys are like, ha ha ha. See, sellouts. That or, was the art. Like, and then they throw a little smoke bomb, <laughs> but, but then they're still there when it disappears. <laughs> like, like now it just all reads as incredibly corny. 
I think they were deeply conflicted about the just the amount of money they saw every time they looked at a bank statement and realized what their kind of trashy music had wrought. Right. Um, Although that was the that was the stated purpose <laughs> of it. In interviews at the time, they say, hey, this is the reason why we're doing all this kind of cash themed art is it has to do with controlling the money. You see all these people where money controls them. You know, we need to show that we are not the six million pounds that uh, doctoring the TARDIS made for us. Right. You know, like we're we're still Bill and Jimmy, maybe, you know, we just do whatever with our money. And, uh, well, you know, famous, and they did not choose a drug habit. They chose this. Famously, uh, when Kurt Cobain first got his money, Courtney Love had him go buy some fancy car and he claimed that he drove it up to some thing and all of his friends pointed at him and laughed. And he immediately took it back and bought a Volvo. <laughs> and so he and Courtney like drove around Seattle in this Volvo station wagon. They lived in kind of a bougie neighborhood too. They did. They bought a very bougie house. Denny Blaine is in my ears and in my eyes. I, I was talking to um, Sir Mix-a-Lot. Whoa. Right, right about, yeah. It's not. It's, Hold on. I don't know if people are going to, I don't know if the microphones are going to pick up you dropping that name. Uh, you know what? We call him Mix here in town. I was talking to Mix uh, right about the time that Macklemore's record came out and it was and it was shooting up the internet charts or whatever. And Mix said that he'd been talking to Macklemore uh, the week before. Is he like a mentor? Is he like the Yoda to Macklemore? Well, he's kind of a Yoda to us all here in the Seattle music scene because he was the, you know, in 1988, the only Seattle musician other than Hart that had ever sold a uh, an album. Plus he was, you know, we were all talking about how small butts should be. And yep. Mix was like, no, no, listen, I, I've got an idea. I'm going to turn the tables on you guys. <laughs> Whoop. Uh, but he said, you know, I said to him, are you ready? And Macklemore said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you're going to go down to the mailbox one day really soon. And there's going to be a check for a million dollars in it. And Macklemore up until this time was just a guy around town, right? A kid that he could play some shows and make some money, but he, he didn't have like dollars. And Mix was like, you need to, you need to get yourself ready because when that arrives, if you think that you're living on $2,000 a month, you're not going to spend that money right, I guess. And you're going to, you're going to make some big mistakes. Right. So get your, you know, sit down and get, get your, your head, head right because right. here comes the money truck. Uh, and that was informative to me, even listening to him tell that story, not because there was a, any kind of million dollar check coming my way, but just like, oh, Right you have these transformative moments in life and you're living so in the moment that you don't realize everything's different now. And it is, it is terrifying. Like most people, you know, don't have to, you know, it's not something you have to plan for. What if the million dollar check shows up? But when it shows up, it's kind of surreal and you, you kind of wonder what your life is going to become. I think KLF was very aware of the Cobain option. They talk about how, you know, rock stars are not supposed to walk away with a dead sheep. It really should be a drug overdose, you know, uh, yeah. they, they should be dead. And instead they're in the black and doing very well. Well, and there's the, and what M does that mean? There's the MC hammer experience where he made a lot of money, multiple millions of dollars. And he gave high paying jobs to his 40 closest friends and bought a house and 40 cars. And then the money stopped and he'd spent it all. And he had to fire everybody and sell everything. That's a cautionary tale in rock too. So at some point, KLF realizes what you have said, which is that it's better for struggling artists to struggle. You know, a lot of people do not make better art when rich people start throwing money at them. And around this time, it's not clear, but 
you know, the process is not clear, but as if on a whim, they get into a small plane, Bill and Jimmy and a journalist from The Observer and a roadie named Gimpo. Sure. Which I assume is some terrible ableist slur in the UK. I don't know. I don't know. We had a roadie named Foo Cheese. Foo Cheese? Yeah. When I was in Harvey Danger, the Harvey Danger roadie and merch guy was named Foo Cheese. Can't, why can't roadies just be named Greg? Why yeah. do you ro- it's a, it's, it's a culture. It's the only perk they get is the, a, the culture is, is of a, a affectionately yeah. uh, insulting nickname. Yeah. Who knows what, I mean, I don't even remember the derivation of Fuji. There was one day when that guy got <laughs> cheese stuck in his mustache and now it's his name. Uh, they board a small plane and head out to the inner Hebrides Island, north of Scotland. Pretty far out. And they don't bring a team of journalists. It's not a big photo opportunity. Just one guy and a roadie with a camcorder. Uh-huh. And I'm they... <laughs> Go on. And that's when things start to get weird. Go on. I've read the title of this episode. I, I think I see what's coming. And, you know, and they've been talking about it, like, you know, as if the money is a some great symbolic weight. What do we do? What do we do? And when, when uh, Jimmy suggests just slicing the Gordian knot, well, why don't we burn it? Just this idea that you could make it disappear in an unforeseen way right. strikes them as hilarious rather than give it to charity let's do this let's burn it well that's the thing so and these guys were big big pop stars this isn't happening just this isn't on the fringe they had like the number one and number four song of the year yes and this is a couple years later but they're still big pop stars what you know what will the klf weirdos do next Mm -hmm. and what they do next is they go to a disused boathouse they kind of they they boathouse and they murder Gimpo. They don't even do it in the town square. They're just like, not only are we going to do this publicly outrageously large and ridiculous statement, but we're going to do it in private in like the... the in like some, some murder locale from an Agatha, not very good Agatha Christie novel. Yeah, we're going to pull over at this convenience store and do it <laughs> behind the store in a dumpster. I think they actually go back to their hotel and they kind of, they can't bring themselves to do it. And finally, they're just like, whatever. And they go back to the boathouse light a fire in the fireplace, break open the uh, suitcase, the black suitcase full of 50 pound notes they've brought, I guess 20, 20,000 50 pound notes. And they just start tossing them into the fire. This is making me sick to my stomach. Okay. So this is what happens to everyone when they hear about or see the video of the biggest rock stars in the world burning a million pounds because you, you think it's gone. That money could have done so much good. The money becomes a symbol for, all the homeless that could have been sheltered or the hungry that could have been fed. So in a way, it is succeeding as an art moment because if art is meant to create a reaction in the in the viewer... I have a strong visceral reaction watching the thing. Not just not because I want to like want to reach through the screen and get the money, but I'm just like, but you know, what a waste. What you know, just putting entropy to work on something that a resource, you know? That but could have done so much good. But it does, it does, uh, I mean, it, it successfully asks the question, is money real even? Right. I mean, money is fake. We, and yet, I mean, it's just a stand-in for a kind of agreement. How can it be real if if this whole fortune has been lost to a fire in a boathouse? It like, just disappears. They can't go back to the bank and say, oh, oops, we lost it, or we burned it. We'd like some, some more money, please. Can we have more? Because it's all just pretend. Money only works because you can't do that. Yeah. And here it is. And it's not that they, it's not that they threw gold into the ocean. 
They just burned some paper, and yet this resource, this scarce resource is gone. It takes them a couple hours. They start to become, you know, at first it's a real show, like, ooh, look at me, I'm burning money. And it's got, the, of course, the 50-pound note has the queen's face on it. Oh. So there's kind of a punk thing going on where, you know, you sure. can see the queen getting eaten into the uh, embers. It's it's subversive. Sure. But, and, and the, they even say, this isn't treason, I hope. You, you can see them kind of wondering if they're breaking any laws. Well, there are places where... There are places in the world, I think in Thailand, for instance, where the, like defacing a photograph of the king would be a major crime. Right. And even in the U.S., I think uh, it's a crime to deface money. Like anytime you put a ballpoint mustache on Andrew Jackson or George Washington, you may be technically breaking the law. Let me discourage our listeners from doing that. Maybe those penny press machines where the, you turn a penny into an oval with a picture of uh-huh. a locomotive I think that on is it. illegal, actually, but it's a, such a small crime they don't enforce it's it. It's such a powerful lobby, I think. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the squished penny <laughs> the, lobby? The squished penny machine guys, they, they know who to pay off. Just a, a, a truck full of squished pennies arrives at your house, and you're like, I vote no <laughs> on the squishing penny should be illegal bill of 2018. You remember putting quarters on the railroad track? Sure. I don't know if people still do that. That was a thing. So they feel like they're doing something subversive, but as time goes on, they just start shoveling the money in like they're pumping coal into a, the, the Titanic or a Because they're bored and they're committed. I mean, once you burn $10,000, you've got to burn the whole million. In for a pound, in for a million pounds, as the saying goes. Mm-hmm. An and, army marches on its feet. <laughs> <laughs> and some of it just blows up the chimney. Like tens of thousands of pounds are just being carried up by hot air currents out, into, out into the Scottish night unburned. Um, but for the most part... It all burns up. They just made a million pounds disappear. Wow. And they take the ashes and pack it back up in the suitcase. Wow. Like cremains. And now they have proof. They have done their art exhibit. And, and Gimpo films the whole thing. So they have a 67-minute movie called Watch the K Foundation Burn a Million Quid. Wow. The guy from The Observer writes an article, which gets little press coverage, which is very shocking to me because, again... It's just upsetting to me. I mean, if they'd done it in uh, Trafalgar Square, it would have been a big news item. But this just seems like fake or just, it just seems like, I mean, to go do it up there all by yourselves, what a weird thing. And I I suppose if they'd done it in Trafalgar Square that there'd have been a riot. Yeah, I wonder if they just thought they'd be stopped or like, this is the only way to get it done and then we'll face what we've done. Yeah. And it seems to be a difficult thing for them to face as well in the weeks and then the months and then the years thereafter. At first they seem fine with it. You know, in, in the video, one of them looks at the ashes going to the suitcase and says, I think it looks better like that. You know, they've still got all the bravado of the situationist movement, you know, yeah. doing their next little Mary Pranksters thing. Although you hear, I'm sure you hear a little screech in his voice. I think it, I think it looks better than that. I think it looks better like that. <laughs> like looking at a really bad haircut on somebody. <laughs> uh, the cameraman is actually traumatized. He, um, he seems to have been kind of caught up in whatever carnival barker spell these guys had. But then he, he comes home and shows the video. And he, he uh, in an interview, he's saying, uh, I think it's great, but me mom doesn't agree. She doesn't want to believe it actually happened. You know, just showing this movie to his family just really upset them. They couldn't believe it's like they just watched him torture and kill somebody on a videotape. Right. Um, they don't know what they want to do with the, uh, with the uh, ashes. With the ashes and the video? I mean, what do they do? They end up showing the video to a room full of journalists and art scene types as kind of a happening. And it's not faked. You can tell it's real. 
Yes, it's 67 minutes of unfakeable, I'm sure today you could digitally do it, but it's just a high eight tape of guys shoveling money into a fire. And people are pretty aghast at it. They try to get the ashes into a gallery. Like it's a suitcase full of ashes. Well, they, and in the, in the, in a documentary made about this, you can see people recommend, um, you know, maybe the bank will uh, replace it. You know, like they actually think it's not, maybe it's not too late. You know, they're grasping at straws. Uh, is that right? You know, is, is there some kind of, you know, will the bank of England, uh, if you can prove money's been destroyed, cause you can go in with a ripped bill and they'll give you a new bill. Right. So yeah. can you do that with the ashes of a million pounds? <sighs> A suitcase full of ashes. I think you're pot committed to this. I think you are as well. Um, they ask gallery owners what they would pay for uh, ash, ashes. ashes in suitcase. And then somebody's like, mm. they get estimates of around 850 pounds. Like I'd ask 1200, you know, I, I'd say a thousand, hoping I had 1200 and settle for 850 pounds. Hmm. Uh, the Tate turns it down. So these guys are just peddling uh, well, a suitcase in, full of ashes. In particular, like they're trying to, it seems like they keep trying to hammer down the walls of the art establishment, but they're, they keep trying to interact with the art establishment. Like they want the Tate, they hate the Tate and they're disparaging of the Tate, but then they want the Tate to buy their art and put it up on the wall. If your enemy doesn't notice you, do you even have an enemy? Right. And you the know, Tate's like, like, why would we, why would we do this? You're not fun. When they show the video, um, some people, you know, they, they're kind of lamely trying to explain why they did it and they can't really explain. And in fact, they later make a pact that they won't talk about the reasons for it anymore. Huh. Um, and somebody in the, and some, you know, they just talk about the statement they wanted to make and the finality for their careers. And somebody in the crowd says, you should have set fire to yourselves. <laughs> and they kind of look at each other and they just kind of laugh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like they, that would have been good. They can kind of see it now. Also, <laughs> they, For some reason, they're obsessed with the idea of making it into a brick. The ash. Yeah, just a just a regular brick. And I think uh, at some point they do. I think some of the ashes gets made into a house brick and one of them still has it today. Hmm. But that's the state of, uh, that was kind of the end of the K Foundation's big performance art exhibitions. Right, after that, who wants to hear more from them? Like, I certainly didn't. How can you top it? Um. So fast forward 30 years. Do they regret it? They again, are they on record now as like being sorry? They have to be cajoled into talking about it. And as you fast forward to our day, now we live in a world where the uh, illusory nature of money is becoming more and more far foregrounded. You know, right. people are convinced that cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin will be the future, and that. Uh, you know, this paper is a relic that should be burned into the ashes of history. But also I'm reminded of the Todd Berry joke where he's talking about Fugazi again and their $5, uh, their limit of $5 on their admission charge. And Todd said, you know, everybody's fine with that, except probably the drummer who's like, hey, you guys, if we just charge $6 a show, maybe I won't have to have a roommate when I'm 47. <laughs> and these guys surely now are, are in late middle age and probably could use their half of a million pounds. They absolutely could. They are, you know, kind of struggling artists, post-musicians, pottering along on whatever 
art projects catch their fancy at home now, mm -hmm. but they do not have a million pounds. <laughs> or and, any portion thereof, not even the, the 1,200 pounds they, they might have gotten from the Tate. And they seem haunted by it. They, oh. they seem like, you know, in the moment they were, they were in some kind of a spell, a hypnotic spell where just keep shoveling it on, shoveling it on, do the thing, do the thing. This is how we slice the knot. And then they had to face the enormity of it and the, their brain is ill-equipped for what they have done. Well, you know, I knew a guy during this same period at the age of 22 that had a friend tattoo the word drunk on in the center of his forehead. <laughs> and I bet you he feels similarly. Bill Drummond uh, had his son come home from school once and he said, Daddy, the boys on the playground were saying you and Jimmy once burned a hundred quid. That's not true, is it? And he said, son, I wish it was. And that concludes Watch the K Foundation Burn a Million Quid. Entry 1412.JM0503. Certificate number 5888 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, please don't at us if you're a lover of ska. Um, but uh, we're going to hear from the lovers of the KLF, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I I I do feel a little bit chagrined um, as an artist being so dismissive of other artists, and I think in the course of the show, I kind of came around to the idea, although it's appalling. You're now in favor. Every good artist needs to burn a million quid. Well, there are there there is a theory of art that says that appalling art that makes a person queasy to uh, to even consider it is like functioning as fantastic art at least i mean you know this was what happened with the nea right the the crucifix in a container of pee or walking on the american flag or you know a lot of this stuff was designed to do kind of this and succeeded in offending us senators I wonder about the, speaking of the offense of it, I wonder about just the bad look of super rich guys burning their own money while you watch. Like, is there a, it is a, is bad, there a classist angle there that's unpleasant? It is for sure. But, you know, they were no longer super rich guys the next day. So it's <laughs> not like, of us. it's not like a billionaire burning a million quid. It's like some guys with a million quid who burn it. And, you know, they weren't going to like give it to a food bank anyway. Yeah. Like they were, they were going to do something dumb with it for sure. Yeah. Anyway, you can find us in all of the social media worlds uh, at Omnibus Project. And also you can read Ken's hilarious tweets at Ken Jennings. And you can read my slightly less hilarious and definitely fewer starred tweets at John Rodering. Um, I also have an Instagram account under my name. And you can email us You can email us at omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. And if you are on the morally bankrupt social media site, Facebook, you uh, can interact with other fans there under Omnibus Futurelings. If you have currency you want to destroy, just maybe send it to us. That's right. If you have Bitcoin you feel like is a fake currency and you want to make a statement, send it to omnibusproject at howstuffworks.com. If you have any legal tender of any kind you think is an albatross around your neck. Yeah, you can PayPal us at our names. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization 
survives before it all burns to ash like a briefcase full of 50-pound notes. We hope and pray that this catastrophe will be averted, but if the worst comes soon, this very recording, like all recordings in this series, could be our final word to you. Is this the one that was on top when you opened the time capsule? Then sorry, this is it. I should not make my car payment this month. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.